The scriptures read, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, this morning we gather as a crowd of people to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you for your presence among us this morning. Spirit of God, I ask that you would work in our hearts today. Transform us, change us into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray in his name. Amen. Well, except for late season snow, thunder, and lightning storms, like we had on Friday night and heading into Saturday morning, March is actually one of my favorite months of the year. Not because it's the month that I was born in, but also because I just love the feeling that things just seem to be coming to life. I don't know, when you walk out your door in the morning, there's, there's difference. There's more birds chirping. The air is a little bit warmer. And not only that, I look forward to March because at the end of the month, Lord willing, we will go up and continue to the tradition that my grandfather started at our farm of making maple syrup every year at the end of the month, which is a wonderful thing. Traditions, we all have them. We all share them in common, right? Whether it be regarding how you celebrate in your family's birthdays, traditions around how you celebrate Christmas or Easter, with March break coming, maybe it's the tradition yearly of going to Florida on a trip during March break, or up to the cottage in the summer. Perhaps it's traditions around Thanksgiving, that dreaded trip to the orchard to pick apples together as a family, look happy and take a picture. Or how about a trip to Tyrone Mills to enjoy some of those homemade donuts covered in cinnamon and sugar. Traditions, we all have them. And our traditions surface memories in our mind. While it was no different for the Jewish people in Christ's day, particularly during the required celebration of the Passover festival. And Jesus, knowing what remembrances would be running through their minds at Passover time, masterfully leverages those memories to further reveal his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. This morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 6. Yes, the longest chapter in the New Testament. Which is jam-packed with so much powerful theological truth that there is just no way in the time we have this morning to be able to cover everything in detail in this wonderful chapter. So we will focus on certain sections that form the main theme of the chapter, which is God's bread. And we will look at how we are fed by God. And so you're going to need to keep your Bibles open this morning, because we're not going to read through the whole passage, and we're going to be going back and forth to God's Word. So I hope you're ready. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6, where we will read the first 15 verses. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, 
And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountainside by himself. We'll pause there for now. The Jewish festival was near. The festival to commemorate the exodus from Egypt and freedom from slavery. So in the minds of those who followed Jesus that day on the mountainside around the Sea of Galilee would have been remembrances of God's exodus deliverance from bondage through Moses and the ten plagues, God's escape through the Red Sea by Moses, and God's miraculous life-saving manna for them in the wilderness through Moses for 40 years. As I read that over in the last few days, I'm amazed at how merciful our God is. Even though their disobedience prolonged their journey, He continued to graciously provide for them. Aren't you grateful for our Heavenly Father who is gracious and merciful to us? And celebrating the Passover festival was to help them never to forget that God is their provider and that God is their deliverer. And that God is their protector. So with these remembrances running through their minds, John records how Jesus unfolds for the crowd the stages of God's redemptive journey. From what happened in the past to what now must happen. It was time for him, as one pastor says, to explain for them that was this and this was that. Only now you can know what that was and what you need to do about this. You try memorizing that. (laughs) That was this and this was that, only now you can know what that was and what you need to do about this. From his initial care of the crowd that we just read on the mountainside and then on into his follow-up dialogue with them in the synagogue in Capernaum, the next day Jesus answers three questions that probably were running through the minds of the crowd. The first being this, where have we seen this before? This referring to the miraculous feeding of the large crowd, which we just read about in the first 15 verses. Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him. And we know in verse 10 that there were about 5,000 men there. That number is not including women and children who potentially, if added, could have brought the total up some estimate to a crowd of 15 to 20,000 people. 
that's a big crowd. I don't know if you've had to feed a large crowd before, but that can be a little bit intimidating. And what we must also keep in mind about this crowd is that this crowd was made up of the poorer of society. You see, Galilee was a peasant agricultural society whose economy was based on producing and maintaining crops and working the land. And as if farming isn't in and of itself tough enough, these people were being taxed heavily and frequently lost their land to the wealthy elite who collected tax revenue on behalf of Rome. So it's no wonder that Jesus' interest in them and his compassion for their needs was generating enthusiastic following among them in that area around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus sees the crowd coming and turns to Philip and asks, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Even though he knew full well there was nowhere that could provide enough bread to feed such a large crowd, Jesus wanted to use that moment to gauge where Philip's developing faith was in Jesus' miraculous ability to provide. And Philip's response revealed he did not yet fully grasp Jesus' miraculous ability to provide, did he? He responds, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to even have a bite. So Andrew, another of Jesus' disciples, jumps in on the conversation and presents Jesus in verse 9 with a young boy who has five small barley loaves and two small fish. But even Andrew wonders realistically, how far will they go among so many people? But Jesus, knowing what he was going to do, instructs his disciples to have the people sit down. He took the loaves, gave thanks, and miraculously distributed to those who were seated. And I love this, as much as they wanted. When God feeds you, he makes sure you are satisfied. As much as they wanted. And then in verse 12, we read, When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. And they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves that were left over. What Jesus did for the crowd that day was more than just satisfy their physical hunger. Through this miracle, he created for them live, in person, a Passover remembrance that would have been running through their minds. And that remembrance would have been of how God in the past had fed his people. Where have we seen this before? Their remembrances would have taken them back to Moses in the wilderness with quail and manna. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 11 to 15, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat. And in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. As a hunter, I often wish this next verse would come true for me. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. What a day that would be if you wake up in the morning and you don't have to go out in the cold. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, the thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. 
They would have had that in their mind. And then later on in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, we, we see the story of Elisha who fed a hundred men. And it's interesting, as you listen to this account, listen how similar it is to what Jesus had just done for this crowd on the mountainside. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42, it reads, A man came from Bel Shalishah, bringing the man of God, which is Elisha, 20 loaves of barley, bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the, give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. Listen to the response. How can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. The multiplication of loaves in accordance with the word of the Lord through his prophet Elijah was pointing forward to the messianic ministry of Jesus himself, which is now being revealed in John chapter 6. And the crowd that day on the mountainside interprets Jesus' miraculous feeding of them as just that. This is messianic. Look what they say in verse 14. Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. A direct reference to a prophecy regarding Jesus in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 and 19. You see, this crowd was anticipating a Messiah to come, who from their perspective, like Moses, would take care of their physical needs and free them from the oppressive Roman rule as he had done with their ancestors back in Egypt. And seeing the sign Jesus had just done for them, they thought, surely, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And they were bang on in thinking Jesus was that prophet. But unfortunately, they were completely misguided in their understanding of why he had come. Their desire, their mission for this coming Messiah was primarily to meet their physical needs, which, yes, did include freedom from the oppressive Roman regime. Can I just say, let's be very careful that we don't have our own agenda, our own mission for Jesus. Jesus has a mission. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and to free people, to free us from the enslavement to sin. And so in 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Jesus withdraws. And his boys get in a boat. And I'm not going to spend much time on this, but this is an amazing few verses. Follow with me in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, which was common on the Sea of Galilee. And the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. They didn't know it was Jesus. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And listen to this. Immediately, the boat reached the shore where they were heading. How amazing would that be? I don't know if you've ever been on water that's choppy, but you just want to get to the other shore as soon as you can. Jesus gets in the boat, and immediately the scripture says they reached their destination. Bring back any memories in your mind, Exodus memories. 
Just as the first exodus involved a crisis at sea and the need for supernatural deliverance at the Red Sea, so Jesus responds to his fear-filled disciples, walking them, walking to them on water, securing a safe delivery for them on the other side. Again, here we see Jesus fulfilling the role of God, not only in feeding, but now on water, protecting, rescuing, and guiding his followers. So what happened to the crowd? Well, we catch up with them in verse 22 to 24. And by now that crowd had grown because others had heard what had happened and had joined them. Verse 22, the next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but, that had gone, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Which at face value is a good thing. Should they not be in search of Jesus? But really it was their misguided expectations that motivated them to get into their boats and to go to Capernaum in search of him. And we find this, when they find him, Jesus begins his major discussion, his revelation, which John highlights through the rest of this chapter regarding God's bread. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, Rabbi, when did you get here? Wouldn't they like to know? <laughs> I don't know if Jesus ever told them. I actually got on the water and walked. And then my buddies picked me up and I immediately put us on shore. It just says, Rabbi, when did you get here? And in verse 26, Jesus exposes their wrong motives for searching for them. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Their motivation for searching for him was solely based on their wants to have their physical needs met by him. They had no genuine interest in understanding the true spiritual significance of who he was and his mission. They simply wanted an earthly deliverer. They were chasing an experience with this man because he seemed to be a provider who could give them their fill. In other words, give them what they wanted. What motivates you to search for Jesus? In verse 27, Jesus warns them of the danger of regarding his kingdom from only an earthly, physical perspective and says to them, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which is the son of, which the son of man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus was not teaching them. He's not teaching us that we should not work and be productive. What he was helping the crowd to understand is that an exclusive focus on this life and the material blessings of this world will always leave you unsatisfied. Do not work for physical food. Instead, work for food that endures to eternal life. To which they said, well, what is it we need to do? They, they wanted to do the works. They still didn't get it. It's by grace. And so in verse 29, Jesus says the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus was drawing on the remembrances of life-saving manna 
miraculously feeds them in order to reveal to them food that will endure to eternal life. And the source of that food is himself, the Son of Man. And the secret to enjoying that food is believing in him, the one God has sent. What are you pouring all your energy, time, and resources into? Food that spoils? Or are you working for food that endures to eternal life? It starts with believing in Jesus, the one God sent. Where have we seen this before? There was a physical reality that Jesus was teaching in this first section about bread. Second question Jesus answers is, what did that all mean? That being the manna their ancestors ate and his relation to the miracle that he had just performed for them the day before. Physical reality. Now Jesus is going to help them understand there's a symbolic reality to God's bread. And in verse 30, they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see, Judaism understood that there was this storehouse, this heavenly treasury of manna that had opened up to feed the people during the era of Moses. This is why they said in verse 31 that their ancestors were fed with bread from heaven. And they believed that the heavenly treasury would be reopened when the coming Messiah arrived. And so if Jesus through his miracle, feeding them that day on the mountainside, was making some type of messianic claim, which he absolutely was, they wanted to know what sort of sign he could give to validate this claim. Hello, I just fed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. That was and should have been a sufficient enough sign to demonstrate Christ's deity. But from their perspective, Jesus' miraculous feeding that day before them was a small miracle, really, compared to what Moses did when he fed their nation for 40 years. In essence, they were challenging Jesus to outdo Moses. And if you can do that, then we will believe. And so Jesus begins to clarify for them what all that meant. The manna, the miracle he had just performed for them the day before. And verse 32 to 33, he says to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Does that response sound familiar to something we heard a couple of chapters ago? Do you remember the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus offered her living waters? And she said, sir, please give me this water. I don't want to thirst again. And I don't want to have to come back here and draw water again. Just like her, the crowd was fixated on, their phys on the physical. In her case, it was water. In their case, it was bread. But as a result of their spiritual blindness, they failed to recognize the spiritual implication that Jesus was the bread. The bread of God is a person. 
And in verse 35, he comes out and declares the first of his seven I am statements recorded in John's gospel. He declares, I am the bread of life. And if you're wondering if he is good bread, listen to his commercial. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. In other words, the life-sustaining manna that God provided your ancestors was a mere shadow of who I am, the true bread of heaven. Unlike manna, which was temporary and perished, I, the true bread from heaven, the bread of life, gives spiritual, eternal life to mankind. Jesus desires, he talked to the crowd that day, was to help them move beyond simply a physical understanding of manna, of bread, to its symbolic significance. What that means, Jesus said, is that God has opened heaven's treasury and rained down the true bread. Aren't you thankful we still don't eat manna? He has opened up heaven and rained down the true bread, God's bread, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, so that by believing you may have life in his name. They didn't even realize Jesus was the manna from God's treasury for which they had been waiting in anticipation. He wanted to shift their focus off of the loaves and fish to the greater food that lasts forever. Where's your focus and where's my focus being given to? And that is not the gift. The gift is not what is absolutely important. Jesus was trying to help them understand it's the giver. Jesus, the Son of Man, on whom God has set his seal, referring to the Holy Spirit, who rested on Jesus powerfully, endorsing his ministry. What did that mean? Here's what it meant, crowd. Moses did not feed you. God did. Which is why I was able to feed you on the other shore in Bethsaida. Because I am God. I am the bread of Passover. Can you imagine this? He's in the synagogue at Passover. Declaring, I am the bread of Passover. The heavenly manna. The contents of God's treasury. And as in chapter 4, when Jesus revealed to the Samaritan woman that his living water will quench her thirst, so now Jesus reveals to this crowd that he is the bread of God that will satisfy their hunger. The end of spiritual hunger is Jesus. And all one must do is believe. What did that mean? Manna on the journey to the promised land in Moses' time, nor the barley loaves in the promised land here in Jesus' time could satisfy the core hunger which Jesus came to satisfy. But sadly, as you and I know in our context, in the world we live in, we see that those who he is addressing would not admit that they were spiritually hungry. Sometimes that's an easy accusation to make of unbelievers. But folks... My concern is that within the body of Christ, we also have a problem with pride. We don't want to admit that we are spiritually hungry. We're in the context of Jesus. We're in the context of his family. We're in the context of religion. And yet you might be here this morning starving spiritually. Verse 36. But as I told you, You have seen me and still you do not 
believe. Still you do not believe. But the confusion of the crowd in Capernaum with hearing the things he was saying and the refusal of some to believe did not discourage Christ from knowing his mission. For Jesus fully recognized that the success of his efforts depended entirely on the Father who is at work in him. Follow along with me in verses 37 to 40. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He will keep them. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Those are great words of assurance if you are in the family of God. Amen? Jesus' entire mission was to conform his life to the will of the Father. He understood that it was God who sent him and who has gone before him, sovereignly calling people to him. The reality is, folks, and you and I know this, the darkness of the world is so severe that God alone can penetrate it in order to free people to see Jesus clearly. And this is why I believe before we even come up with strategies or plans of how to evangelize, the first step for us to help people in our community see Jesus clearly, we need to be on our knees. Asking God to do the work that only God can do to penetrate their dark minds who are living in this dark world so that they might see Jesus clearly. The point of emphasis Jesus is making here is that the Father's will cannot be thwarted, cannot be defeated despite the darkness of the world. We don't need to give up. God is at work. And all those he gives to the Son will come. And all those who come, Jesus will keep. What does all that mean? Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here, right in front of you, is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the bread of life has been sent from God's treasury as an atoning sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that will benefit the world. What does all that mean? God is the supplier of the divine bread. Jesus is the bread of life, and whoever eats of it will live forever. Are you experiencing spiritual malnutrition? Never feel satisfied? It might be because you and I too readily seek satisfaction from the bread of this world rather than the bread of life. Where have I seen this before? What does all that mean? Final question Jesus answers. What do I need to do now? You see, there's a physical reality to bread that Jesus uses to help identify who he is. There's a symbolic reality to the bread, which we've just covered. 
but there is also a spiritual reality that requires a response to the bread. Verse 52. Then the Jews, after hearing what Jesus has said, began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. What do I need to do now that I understand Jesus is the bread of life and that without him I have no life? Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Can you imagine the crowd that day that had gathered went through such a roller coaster of emotions. At first they were amazed by his miraculous feeding of the multitude. Then they were startled when he described himself as the heavenly bread from God. And now they were horrified at what he was saying. He went from talking about earthly bread to heavenly bread, Jesus as bread, Jesus as bread to eat, and now Jesus as sacrifice? What Jesus was telling them was very graphic. And they became restless and their grumbling turned into arguing. Sadly, it sounds like our churches sometimes, doesn't it? Because they misunderstood the spiritual truth behind what Jesus was telling them they must do. No, Jesus was not proposing religious cannibalism. First, drinking blood was looked down on as forbidden in the Old Testament. And secondly, to eat someone's flesh indicates hostility toward them. So how were they and how are we today to understand this life-giving meal of Jesus, the bread of life? Well, the way Jesus uses the word eat in the original Greek language refers to it as a singular event. A singular event. Can you, as you sit here now in your mind, think about when was there a singular event when I ate the flesh and drank the blood of Jesus? Conversion. When you were saved. To eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood is the one-time event that occurs when we became followers of Jesus Christ. It is not, as some think, a reference to the sacraments in communion. Although communion does symbolize the commitment we have made to eat and drink Christ, just like baptism symbolizes the commitment we have made to eat and drink Christ. What must I do now with this? To believe in him as the only way to have eternal life and be raised up at the last day. Just as bread provides for physical life, Jesus, the bread of life, alone and only provides spiritual life. So how did they respond? Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? 
Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He's telling them there's going to be things coming down the road that are going to offend you even more. That's why if you go down to verse 65, he went on to say, understanding the restlessness in their heart, understanding this was a hard teaching to accept. This is why I told you, he says in verse 65, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. The response of many of his disciples, sadly, who were part of the crowd that came across the sea was unbelief and rejection. Look what it says in verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. False disciples will identify themselves with unbelief, whereas true disciples will respond in belief. Look at verse 67. He turns to the 12. You do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. True disciples respond in belief. And not only does John point out the only two responses to the bread of life, which is unbelief and rejection, or belief and embrace, but we see that there are three kinds of people in this chapter, and as we close this morning, I pray the Holy Spirit will work on your heart. Be honest before the Lord. Where am I at in these three categories of people that are revealed through this account in Bethsaida and in Capernaum? Three kinds of people. Those who are an exploiter of Jesus, what can I get out of him? Well, I'm going to chase the experience. If this can add to my joy here in life and get me more things, I'm all in. There were those who were exploiters of Jesus. As we've just read, there were those who were offended by Jesus. Offended by Jesus not only because of what he was saying, but in their hearts, knowing what does that mean I'm going to have to give up. And thirdly, there were those who feasted on Jesus, knowing what they desperately needed, feasted on him, because he is the only one who can nourish our souls. Feasting, how are we fed by God? Through the bread of life, Jesus Christ, the living word. And how do we continue to be fed by God? Through the written word of God. Which one of these are you? An exploiter of Jesus? Are you offended by Jesus? Or are you feasting on Jesus? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Are you open and willing to receive the bread of life? This morning, by God's grace, like that day on the mountainside around the Sea of Galilee, a crowd has gathered. We are here, a crowd. God knows the condition of your soul. 
God knows where you are investing all your time, resources, and energy. He knows whether you have believed in his son, Jesus Christ. Now is the time, if the Holy Spirit is working on your heart, and through his word, he has pinned something in your life that is not pleasing to him. Perhaps you and I have been exploiting Jesus, chasing after him, following him, being involved in all religious activities, but with the wrong motives. Jesus said he just wants us to love him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize, I don't even know Jesus. But there's a hunger inside of me that I don't know how to quench, and everything I've tried keeps leaving me hungry. But as I mentioned earlier, I think there's some of us in here who perhaps even though we have ate initially of the bread of life at salvation, we have been chasing and feeding ourselves on the bread of this world rather than prioritizing daily feasting on Christ. And so as we sing our final song this morning, this is the opportunity to leave this building this morning with some of those burdens and some of those weights lifted off your shoulder. We're going to sing a closing song called Savior. That's what the mission Jesus came to do, to save his people from their sins. And whatever the Lord is working on your heart this morning, whether he's convicted you that I've been exploiting him and I need to come and confess, whether he's convicted you that I have been putting all my energy into food that's going to spoil and I need to make sure that God is number one in my life again, then come and confess. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but God is putting a desire in you to taste and see that the Lord is good, you come while we sing this song. Whatever category you fall in, he is Savior, and he loves you, and he wants to make sure you leave this morning not thirsty and not hungry. He is the bread of life. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to be reminded of your love for us. You are our deliverer. You are our protector. You are our provider. Jesus, you are the bread of life. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us the gift of faith to believe in Jesus, to partake of him, the bread of life, and all that that means for us. And so Jesus, as we sing this song as a a declaration of truth and a declaration of our hearts. Jesus, you are Savior. Holy Spirit, whatever work you're doing in people's hearts today, I pray that you will help them today to not leave this place hungry or thirsty, but that they will come and feast on Jesus. We commit this part of our worship service to you. Transform us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I trust that you are grateful and excited that he is your savior, that you have tasted and seen that the Lord, the bread of life, is good. We just sang, I will give my life to declare that you are king. It's easy to sing it when we're here together, but we're going to be in that dark world as soon as we leave this building. How are we actually doing with declaring to those around that he is king? Trust me, you will never hunger. You will never thirst. This is my experience. Here's what I can tell you. I thought about that crowd that met in Capernaum. It had grown because others had heard what had happened on the mountainside that day. 
I wonder what chatter is going around in our city because of what Jesus is doing in our life. Is it quiet? Do they notice something different about us that is making them curious by God's grace? I pray by His grace and through His power and by partnering with Him and being obedient to be ambassadors of reconciliation that that will happen. And people will come, not to us as the choir sang this morning, but so that they will meet the bread of life because He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. There's a lot of hungry people out there, folks. And we have the bread of life to offer them. I will give my life to declare that you are king. To the power of the Holy Spirit, let's make sure we're doing that. And so this week as you go home, more time on our knees, more time feasting on the written word of God, and more time being prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. We have the bread of life. Amen? May God help us in Jesus' name. Amen.